Welcome to the Great Area Podcast, where we have the conversations people are afraid to have with the people they are afraid of. Now, before I had a conversation with an Orthodox uh, rabbi that literally lives in Israel, and then I did uh, that was Rabbi Singer, and then I had a conversation with Dr. Taylor Marshall, who is a Catholic teacher, uh, and now I'm having a conversation with a Orthodox Christian philosopher, if I get that right, Jay. Dyer, did I pronounce Dyer right? Yeah. All right, awesome, Jay Dyer. Welcome to the podcast, man. Thanks, Bryson. Glad to be here. It was a pleasure to meet you uh, recently, and thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Now, me and you are supposed to have uh, some type of formal debate on IDG podcast, I believe, but this isn't a debate. This is me because a lot of people get these conversations confused. A lot of people hit me up and like, Bryson, why aren't you challenging this person on this? Challenging person on this. That's not the point of these conversations. The point of these conversations is to understand someone's belief system. So when people do have conversations, it can be an honest one, uh, intellectually honest one outside of just pure emotions. Also, uh, I just know how to pit my personal views to the side and listen for a little bit. So uh, are you ready to get into it? Yeah, I am. And I think that's a great way to approach it. That way we both know where we're coming from and we don't have, you know, assumptions and talk past each other. So, yeah, it's a great way to do it. Boom. Now, the first question, actually, a few people ask this question. What is Orthodox Christianity and why is it Eastern Orthodox Christianity? Is there a Western Orthodox? Because this is this is actually the faith that I know the least about. Uh, I know about Catholicism. I know about Judaism. I know about Islam. I know about all the different denominations of Christianity. I know the least about Orthodox Christianity. So please explain it to me. Yeah, I think the answer to the first part is that for the first thousand years of Christianity, uh, from our perspective, the East and the West was united. So basically the Orthodox East was in the same union with the papacy and the, the, the what's called the Roman Catholic Church in the West. And then the split occurred uh, roughly between the 900s up into the 1100s between the East and the West. So you, in the West, after the first thousand years, you get the Roman Catholic Papal Church and then the Orthodox Church is, we we would say, we believe, the continuation of the way the church was for the first thousand years. So it's the Orthodox Catholic Church, and the only reason it's usually called Eastern is just to distinguish it from the Roman Catholic Church. Okay, so the Roman Catholic Church was the Western, and okay, so that's, that, that's what's the split. So obviously the most popular question I've received is what makes y'all different from Catholics or any other uh, denomination of Christianity for that matter. Yeah. Uh, so first point would be against Roman Catholics. The most obvious thing is that we don't accept the Pope as an infallible guide, as a arbiter, as an autocrat, as a person who can unilaterally tell all the churches what to do. We do think that the Bishop of Rome had an important place of honor in the first thousand years. If you look at what are called ecumenical councils, that's councils that were had uh, throughout the first uh, thousand years of Christianity that the emperor called. Most of those councils gave a place of honor to the Bishop of Rome, but there's nothing like what we see d defined at Vatican I, which is a Roman Catholic council in the 1800s that said that the Pope has infallible powers to bind everybody to it, and then he can't, he cannot err. So orthodoxy could never accept that. And there's other things, too, that really matter, which is uh, stuff like the filioque doctrine, which in the West is the idea that the Holy Spirit precedes from the Father and the Son as from a single principle. And the Orthodox Church doesn't believe that because we have a different view of the Trinity. 
which is monarchia. And so that means that the father is the, the monarchia or the arche, the sole source, cause, and fountain of the Godhead. And the son is eternally begotten and the Holy Spirit is eternally proceeding, but only from the father. So we don't allow the son to be this sort of secondary principle or co-principle, because for us, that would mean that the father's identifying mark, which is to be arche or to be cause, would be given to the son. And then we would have confusion in the Trinity. So Beyond that, there's a bunch of other things, too. We don't believe in the Roman Catholic doctrine of what's called created grace, which is the idea that what we get in salvation is another created status or a, an infusion of a, a, a created uh, accident in the soul. These are all Catholic doctrines. We think that Jesus came to give us a participation in uncreated grace or immortal life. And that's why in John 17, he says that he came to give us the grace that he had with the Father before the foundation of the world. So God's glory and grace that he has before the foundation of the world can't be a creature. So for us, we can never accept the Catholic doctrine of what's called created grace. Um, we don't accept some of the extremities of the way that they view Mary uh, as a, a co-redemptrix in these kinds of terms. We think they're, they're misleading and dangerous. That's also bound up with the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception of Mary, which is bound up with an Augustinian view of original sin, which the Orthodox Church doesn't hold to. Um, and there's other issues that we don't agree with Rome on uh, what, has, what has to do with like the sacraments. We think that in the first thousand years of Christianity, uh, the, it was pretty normative until the time of Charlemagne that uh, infants received communion. It's called pedo communion. And so the Western church changed that around the time uh, that they mandated that priests had to be celibate, which we also don't accept. Orthodox priests are married. They have families for the most part. Um, so there's, there's other things too. The Orthodox church has a specific doctrine of icons, which uh, is outlined at the seventh council on the basis of the incarnation. And although the Roman Catholic church says that they believe in the seventh council, they don't actually believe what it says. They just give kind of verbal credence. And then you can kind of do whatever you want. You can make a Chinese Jesus. You can make a black Jesus. You can make Jesus into whatever you want from the Orthodox view. He has to be imaged as he was in history as a Hebrew. So he can't be a Chinese dude or whatever. Um, and so that's the thing that comes about with like Jesuit approaches to uh, converting people with enculturation. All that stuff the Orthodox Church rejects, as well as indulgences. We don't believe in purgatory. Uh, so that's how we differ from Rome. And then we differ from Protestants, because at least in terms of classical Protestant teaching, uh, we don't believe that uh, justification is by faith alone. We don't believe that the sacraments are mere symbols or signs. We think it, it, we have a similar view to the Roman Catholics that baptism regenerates and that the Eucharist is really the bod body, blood, soul, and uncreated divinity of Christ. Uh, so those are the majors that I can think of that distinguish us from Protestants and, and Roman Catholics. One, I guess I should say too, against Protestants, we also believe in tradition. Uh, we believe that tradition is what kind of went into deciding what books go into the Bible. We believe in apostolic succession that the apostles set up bishops who have a, a literal historical lineage all the way back to their day. Um, so those are the main things that divide us from Protestants and Roman Catholics. You just pretty much went through all the questions people had. <laughs> well, I could expand on any of them if you want. Yeah. So we gonna have to dive deeper into these questions. So um, one, of, one of the questions I don't have down though, that you mentioned that I find very interesting. Um, this is actually super interesting because I basically realized just now I know nothing about Orthodox Christianity. What do you mean by um, Jesus can only be Hebrew? So how? So so what is y'all view on like how Jesus looked? 
So if you look at, <clears throat> I mean, there's some minor variations in the way orthodoxy does icons of Christ, but most of the time they're pretty consistent. They always kind of look the same. And that's because in our view, uh, iconography is part of theology. For us, it's just another way of writing a text. So for the, for example, the way that we, the Protestants would say, you know, the Bible's God's word. Um, we think that the words on the, in the Bible are just another kind of icon or image in the same way that uh, like a picture that shows, you know, Jesus' baptism or uh, Jesus uh, turning water to wine, right? Those are images that are teaching the same thing through, through images that you would find in the images of words on a Bible page. So for us, it's, it's, that's why they're called icon writers, if people write the icons. And so it's very important for our view that, as St. Gregory Palamas said in the Middle Ages, the icon doesn't depict a symbol. It depicts a reality. So for us, they're not mere symbols. They are symbols, but they're symbols that teach and depict real events that really happened in history and time and space. So if Jesus is going to fulfill the messianic prophecies all throughout the Old Testament to be the Messiah, then he's got to be who he's said to be in terms of his genetic lineage, his bloodline. So he has to descend from Adam. He has to descend from Abraham and from David all the way up. And that's why the genealogies, you know, in Matthew and in Luke, they portray him uh, in a specific bloodline to fulfill those prophecies. And that means he has to be Hebrew. He can't be, you know, the way the Jesuits did it in the 1600s, 1700s, making him into, you know, Chinese Jesus or whatever to convert Chinese people. <laughs> Okay. So that's um, what I meant by that. Okay. Awesome. Now, another thing I don't have written down, but you touched on is this difference in the Trinity. Now, for the people watching, can you break the differences down on how y'all view the Trinity and how Catholics view the Trinity? Can you break it down as if you're talking to a three year old? So basically, the, <clears throat> the Roman Catholic approach, uh, which really solidifies and becomes super dogmatic and clear by the late Middle Ages, argues that the Trinity is first and foremost seen as an absolutely simple singular essence. And then within that essence, you have what they call relations of persons. And so the father is distinguished by uh, uh, how he relates to the son and to the spirit and vice versa for each person. They also have this idea of what's called relations of opposition, that how do we distinguish these people in the the persons in the Trinity? Well, the one is not the other two. This other one is not the other two, and this one's not the other two. So it's a very uh, unitary-centric, unitive-centric view of the Trinity, and that's not the orthodox view. And because they had that view, which they got from what's called Neoplatonism, it's a, it's a Neoplatonic doctrine of simplicity which reduces all of the things that you say about God to the divine essence. We don't take that approach. We start with the person of the father. And that's when I was, what I was saying earlier about uh, the monarchia view of the Trinity, that the father is the one God in the sense that most of the time in scripture or most of the time in the early church, uh, when they talked about, you know, J Paul says for us, there is one God, the father of all James says there is uh, one God, the father of lights from whom all gifts descend. So for us, the, where we start with God is not the essence of God or the unity of God, but the person of the father. And then from the father, we derive from scripture in our view, the eternal begetting of the son in the first chapter of John and another text. And then the spiration of the spirit, by the time we get to John 16, 17, where Jesus goes into his high priestly prayer and makes the distinctions that we think are fundamental. So it's another, in other words, it's a beginning with the person of the father and not the nature. And for Orthodox theology, the distinction between nature and person is really fundamental to how we do both Trinitarian theology and Christology. And so 
when you get to the late Middle Ages, the Roman Catholic Church at the Council of Lyons in 1274 and later at the Council of Florence has basically solidified that they take the Augustinian view of the Trinity, which we don't. We do believe Augustine's a, a saint, but we don't agree with everything he said. The Western Roman Catholic Church pretty much defaulted to most of what Augustine taught uh, wholesale. Um, but we don't. We accept what's called the Cappadocian doctrine of the Trinity, which is different from Augustine's doctrine. And so our Trinitarian theology was accepted at the Second Ecumenical Council, which is called Constantinople One in 381. And so there's no filioque doctrine there. There's no there's no double procession. There's just the Father as the sole source and origin of the Son and the Spirit. Okay, so I want to dive deeper into that to make sure even I understand it at this point. So y'all you, you, believe that the Father is still separate from the Son, which I believe everything comes from the Father. The Father is the beginning. Is that sort of what you're saying? Correct. But we wouldn't say separate. So and that reason we don't say that is because we think separation would imply that there's a division or parts. And we don't think God has parts, but we do think there's real distinctions that exist in God without there being parts. And we think that because we think that's what the, the Torah teaches. Uh, we think that's what uh, the Psalms and the Old Testament prophets teach, because they talk about the, the father and his angel who comes, the angel of the Lord. We think that's Jesus because the angel of the okay. Lord is is showing up in these what are called theophanies in the Old Testament. And they're distinct from the father because the father is said to send him. He says in Exodus, I will put my name in him. This angel will go before you. He will uh, fight for you. He will cleanse the promised land. He's called wonderful counselor to uh, Manoah, Samson's parents. Uh, he's called God multiple times. He's called Yahweh. He's called uh, the Redeemer in Genesis 49. So for us. Uh, and when Hagar sees the angel of the Lord, she says, I've seen God. So for us, this is that God can pick out the father and then it can pick out the son or the angel of the Lord, who's given these divine titles and names. It's also in Ezekiel 1 through 10, where he, the angel is called one like a son of man. And so for us, angel just means messenger. It can be a created being like Michael and Gabriel. Or for us, it can be the uncreated son, the second person of the Godhead. We don't think that there's parts. We just think that there's real distinctions between Father and Son and Spirit. And they also have the Spirit mentioned throughout the Old Testament, too. He's mentioned in Genesis. He's mentioned, uh, in my view, in the Psalms in multiple places, like Psalm 32 in the Protestant Bible. He's mentioned as, as well in Zechariah 1, 2, and 3, where you have Yahweh, you have uh, Yeshua mentioned as the, the Son there, and then you have the Spirit mentioned in Zechariah 1, 2, and 3. You also have the Spirit mentioned in Ezekiel 1 through 10. So for us, we see the Old Testament itself teaching the Trinity. And there's a, a lot of modern Jewish scholars nowadays, too, like uh, Alan Siegel in Two Powers of Heaven and Benjamin Summers in The Body of God, who, reflecting on ancient Hebrew theology, admit that it's not a pure Unitarian view. It's not a pure oneness view in the Old Testament. Even the Old Testament, according to Siegel and uh, Summers, admits this sort of distinctions in God, which... You can look at the history of like if you go to the Jewish Encyclopedia and you look up uh, the Shekinah and they will debate. Rabbis have debated over the centuries whether that's an angel, Metatron, God himself, God's essence. And so th these debates existed within Judaism, showing that even Judaism didn't have this monolithic sort of Unitarian view. Uh, there was a recognition of multiple persons, you could say. Uh, in God, even in the Old Testament. So that's where we think the Trinity comes from. It's not something that like the church made up or uh, that, you know, Paul made up. There's different people, you know, like Muslims say Paul made this up or that uh, Constantine made it up or whatever. We think that it has its roots in the Old Testament. 
not in uh, Paul or Constantine. Okay, and, and another question is, do y'all actually use uh, the what I view as the true names of God, as you said? Um, um, like I don't like saying I don't like saying them, obviously, but uh, like you know, this is an instructive moment, so I guess so. Uh, Yahweh, do you actually use those names? Or do y'all strictly stick to just God? No, we think all of those names are appropriate to God, and we would agree that they shouldn't be uh, misused. Uh, I mean, you know, in, in in Exodus 3, you have what's called the Eir, Asha, Eir, and for us, that's the I am that I am. It's God's statement of his own supreme self-existence, right? God doesn't derive his existence from something else. Uh, and we think that's basically the Father speaking, I am that I am. So, um, no, we don't have a problem with those uh, hallowed names of God. And in fact, we would say that you know, think why HWH that's actually applied in the old Testament to the angel of the Lord, which we think is a, a prediction of the Messiah's divinity. Awesome. Now, another question uh, that a few people had that I was, I was personally confused about is one, it's like a two in one question. One, uh, do y'all celebrate all the holidays like Christmas, Easter, um, all these things like that? Or do y'all celebrate them more? like Passover and things of that nature. And I, as a matter of fact, I do know y'all celebrate Christmas, but I heard it was on a different day. Yeah, so, uh, well, so, like the Orthodox Church, we think that uh, the feasts of the New Testament are in more or less overlaps and fulfillments of the, the feasts of the Old Testament. So, for example, what, what in the Orthodox Church, what the West calls Easter, for us, that's Passover. Uh, the Orthodox name for Easter is Pascha, right? So Easter is a mid, uh, medieval Germanic term. It's not a term that was used in the Orthodox Church. Um, but so for us, Pascha is the celebration of Passover. It's, it's literally the same for us, right? So it's not identical to like the Jewish Seder and all that. We think that Christ is the true Passover. And so it's always called and has the symbology and terminology. If you go to Orthodox Church, for example, on Easter, It'll all be readings from the Old Testament about Passover, and then it's always referred to as Pascha, which just means Passover. So in our view, like if you got a book like this, Feast of the Lord, it would basically just be arguing that everything that we're doing in the Orthodox Church is what those, uh, you know, Feast of Weeks, Feast of Trumpets, what those things were meant to be fulfilled in and signify. So for us, there's continuity and discontinuity. There's overlap and fulfillment at the same time. Okay. Awesome. Now, um, you, you talked about this a little bit also um, earlier. Now, what are your views for, uh, of the immaculate conception of, of Mother Mary, which is literally how somebody acts it on Twitter? Um, and, and how does it differ from how Catholics view it? Yeah, I think the Orthodox Church has a different view from both Protestants and Roman Catholics. So we definitely think that because Mary was chosen to be a vessel to give birth to the Messiah that she has an important and high role. We think that she was by grace preserved from sin. We think that there's a lot of symbols and images in the old Testament, even that speak to Mary. Like I think it's Psalm 45, which talks about the queen standing next to the King and gold of Ophir. We think that's talking about Mary in the eschaton in the, in the state when she's uh, glorified. And Jesus, of course, is the Messiah there because that's a messianic psalm. So most of those messianic psalms that David talks about, uh, which dozens of them uh, that Jews believe in, we think those are all fulfilled in Christ and that they're present realities. So the, the reality is that Mary, when she uh, died and when she went to heaven, uh, 
we think she's now the queen of heaven and we think apocalypse 12 when it talks about that woman that's in heaven reigning over the universe we think that's her um it's also the church it's an image that has dual symbology and dual use there and so we think she's the ark of the new covenant we think that she's the one who gave birth to the divine son of god uh, not that she caused his divinity but she did give him his human nature his humanity he derived that from her so she's honored in that way, but we don't think that she's like a goddess or anything like that. So um, immaculate conception is what Roman Catholics thought was necessary to define about Mary to preserve her from the taint of original sin. And that's what I was getting at earlier with this idea that comes from uh, Augustinian theology, which is that in some way what's passed down is some kind of taint in original sin that kind of makes us sinful or uh, evil from birth. And even though the Roman Catholic Church kind of walked this back in the Middle Ages with the doctrine of infant limbo and this kind of stuff, they still retain this idea that there's something that's inherently evil in us. And that's something that Augustine struggled with because he was in a sect before he became a Catholic that was called Manichaeanism. And the Manichaeans were a dualistic sect. They believed that there was two existing good and evil principles that were eternally fighting each other. And so uh, we don't think that evil has any substance or being it's a movement of the will away from the good to use the philosophical language so there's no thing that exists that's evil because when god created he created everything and he said it's good so you can't have something that's evil that has real existence that would make god into some sort of gnostic dualistic creator so for us human nature is good but it is deprived of grace and so when infants are born they are born with the effects of adam's sin but not the guilt of Adam's sin. And so if since we have that view, in our view, uh, Mary had uh, the, the effects of Adam's sin because she died. It's called the Feast of Dormition in the Orthodox Church, but she didn't sin. So clearly there's a distinction between the guilt of Adam's sin and the effects of Adam's sin. So we think everybody has the effects, including Mary, but not the guilt. Roman Catholics think that Mary uh, was, in order to be preserved from the effects and the guilt, had to be immaculately conceived and not born in original sin. So that's the basic distinction there. But against the Protestants, uh, we do think that she is the queen of heaven and she's the spotless virgin. She's all these other titles uh, that we do think give her honor and uh, preference. So y'all do believe she was perfect, to be clear? Yeah. Okay, cool. Um... Matter of fact, let me stop going to questions. I got other questions. So you, you talked about earlier um, about how Catholics view purgatory, right? So my question, and this question is going to lead into what I, what I wanted to say with that, is do you believe people have to be a part of the... First off, you believe that the Orthodox Church is the one true church, correct? We do, yeah. Do you believe people have to be a part of that one true church for salvation? Yeah, we think that the <clears throat> the sacraments are um, essentially efficacious only in communion with the Orthodox Church. So baptism, Lord's Supper, all these things are necessary for us to participate in to uh, achieve what we call deification or theosis, which is what we think Peter's talking about when he says that in Christ we're made partakers of the divine nature. <clears throat> and it's also that text where, you know, like I was saying in John 17, where Jesus says that uh we participate in the glory that he had with the father before the foundation of the world, which we think signifies that it has to be an uncreated grace that we're partaking of because that glory is not created. God's glory can't be a creature. 
Uh, so when it comes to um, the church, we think that you have to in some way be uh, unified and united to that body. So can God unite people who die in another group uh, in some uh, out of the norm way? Sure, he can do that. But from our vantage point, all we know from the human vantage point, we, we can't judge people's destinies. That's up to God ultimately. But we our job is to tell people that they have to join the Orthodox Church. So if God has an extra normative way by which he does that, he can do that. But from our perspective, the mystical body of Christ is only the Orthodox Church, and the other churches are heterodox and and in error. But uh, certainly, there's grace in those groups, or else nobody would ever come to Orthodoxy. From our perspective, so there's grace outside the church. But the only way to be saved ultimately is if God unites you to the mystical body of Christ, which we think is the Orthodox Church. Um, but if God has a means by which he can do that outside of the normal means of joining through baptism and all that, he can do that. But uh, we don't, you know, we see it as the ark, uh, like Noah's ark. So you have to join the ark. <laughs> Interesting. Um, so with that being said, how do y'all view hell? And, and another question is, how do y'all view saying? Because I, uh, if you want Orthodox Jews view Satan a little different, they just simply view Satan as an employee of God, um, meant to test our free will, to to entice us with, with bad things to go against um the will of God. So how do y'all view hell if not purgatory? Because you said y'all don't believe in purgatory. So yeah. how do y'all view it? Or if y'all view it anyway at all? And how do you view who Satan is and his role? Yeah, that's a good question. So <clears throat> we don't believe in the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory. Um, that kind of developed in a uh, an interesting way out of certain quotes in the church fathers, which uh, were commenting on Paul's analogy in 1 Corinthians 3 of metallurgy and metals. So in that chapter, Paul talks about being saved through fire and our works being tested and, and whatnot. And some church fathers talked about a purgation that occurs. And then later Roman Catholic theologians, uh, speculated that, that that meant that there was this temporary status where you go after death to pay for the temporal punishments for your sins. So you might have had the eternal debt for your sins forgiven by a priest or something like that in the Roman Catholic Church, but you might still have temporal debts outstanding that you got to pay for. And so they said that's purgatory. This is where the doctrine of indulgences comes from in the Roman Catholic Church. Um, and we don't believe any of that. For one, we don't believe that God has a created fire. Uh, there's no such thing as that because Paul says in, in uh, Hebrews that our God is an all-consuming fire. If God is an all-consuming fire, then he can't have created fire. He's an uncreated being. He can't have created aspects or parts or components that make him up. And so for us, purgatory is a, an aberration. We think those texts are talking about the purgation that occurs through the through the trials of this life. Uh, and through the judgment of God. Uh, and in the next life, we think that the that the end times or the afterlife, all these things, there's a bodily resurrection. And then we exist not in a lake of fire, but that the, the images that are used in the New Testament, like lake of fire and all this stuff, are ways to describe the experience of individuals in the end times based on how they lived in this life. So if you lived according to virtue in this life by grace, then you love God, your experience of God is going to be positive because you love God. If you uh, hate God and you don't like God and you don't live according to the virtues, then in the eschaton, you're going to have the experience of God as a negative, bad experience, right? So it's God that torments the wicked. 
not uh, like literal lake of fire. It's actually just the presence of God. So we think that God is the consuming fire that's mentioned uh, in in the sense of the lake of fire. And so for us, the the river of life that proceeds from the Lamb is the same as the river of fire. It's the both. It's both of those are images of the divine energy and presence of God that either burns the wicked because of their uh, attachment to vice, or it's experienced as beatitude for the righteous due to their loving of God. And in, in our view, uh, hell and heaven begin in this life. So already you can be experiencing hell if you hate God in this life. And you can already experience the, percept, the direct perception of God in this life if you begin to love God in this life. So how do you, this is a personal question. Oh, now. the devil, I, I forgot. Go ahead. I'll, I'll mention the devil later. But how do you <clears throat> balance that out with like evil people having a good life, like very rich, not a lot of stress. If, um, if you think wicked people will experience hell in this lifetime. Well, not everybody in the same degree. So there are natural virtues that a person can live by and uh, have a reasonably comfortable life, you could say. Uh, so if I follow the natural virtues, I might not have uh, theosis or uncreated grace in the sense of being in the church, um, but I still won't be necessarily saved, right? Because the only way to be saved is to be, in our view, united to Christ. So you can have people who follow uh, natural law and natural virtues uh, without uh, obtaining and experiencing supernatural grace and uh, uncreated virtue, so to speak, which is the life of Christ. So in our view, what happened in the garden was that when man sinned, he lost uh, the likeness of God. So we think there's a distinction between the image and the likeness. And so when it says that uh, man was made the image and likeness of God. And we think when he fell, he retains the image of God, but he lost the likeness, which is deification or theosis or divine life. So man is reduced to a kind of natural existence, mortality, and so forth. And Christ restores us in the incarnation, death, burial, and resurrection and ascension to immortality, to eternal life and all that. But we have to appropriate that by our will. It's not just something that's automatic. So uh, it, you, you can, in a sense, not be as miserable as the most. It, it kind of depends on how you live, right? I mean, if you live extremely wicked, you're going to be miserable and tormented in this life, uh, even if you get away with some things, right? And still experience that in the, in the afterlife. Um, and you can also be not as wicked as someone else and have a relatively comfortable life. But that doesn't mean that you're going to be saved just because you were a good person. Okay, nice awesome. Um, here go a question that a lot of people ask. And if you had to choose, what's more important, tradition or scripture, or are they equal? If you had to choose, that's a good question. So I would say, for, and by the way, on Satan, just real quick, we think Satan is a fallen angel who was one of the, if not the most powerful and highest ranking of uh, of God's cherubs. He's called a cherub in Ezekiel twenty eight. And so when he fell, uh, he fell into a kind of um, perpetual willing of evil and sin. So he can never be saved or restored. All of the angels that fell with him is one third of the angels, according to John in the Apocalypse. They are all then intent on destroying man because we believe that Adam was made in the image of Christ. So we think that, as Paul says, Adam is a type of Christ. And that's because Christ created Adam, we think. So it's we actually put adam as a christological figure uh in the old testament as is melchizedek and many other people in the old testament but so for us 
Uh, man's destiny was always to be a son of God. And when man fell due to linking himself to Satan, he kind of made a compact, a covenant with death and aligned himself to Satan's kingdom. And so Satan is a, for us, like I said, a fallen angel. And the purpose of Christ coming and becoming man is to restore and heal our nature and not just heal it to being naturally good, but to actually raise it above even what was in Eden. Because in Eden, they were in a mutable state. They could choose righteousness or they could choose the path of death. So uh, we'll be in an even better state in our view in the eschaton because there won't be any possibility of sin or death. And we think our bodies and, and all that will be modeled on how Christ's body was in the resurrection. John says that when we see him, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. Paul says that he will in Philippians, that he will conform our lowly body to the image of his glorious body. So uh, we think that Satan was destroyed basically at the cross. And then now history is a sort of the mopping up exercise of that definitive destruction. Um, one last point on that, uh, we also think that the descent of Christ into Hades is a very important doctrine. Uh, we see that in a lot of the Psalms where David talks about uh, in the Messianic Psalms, descending into Hades, being amongst the dead, and then being vindicated and raised. We think those are all Messianic Psalms predicting the death, burial, and resurrection of the Messiah. And also Paul talks about Christ can't ascend unless he first descends. Jesus says he would be in the heart of the earth uh, for three days and three nights like Jonah was in the belly of the whale. And then, uh, you know, Paul, Peter says that he preached to the spirits in prison. The Greek word is Tartarus, which is the realm of the dead in uh, Greek terminology in the, in the New Testament. So for us and in Greek, Greek thought philosophy. So for us, Jesus had to descend to the realm of the dead and preach the gospel to the dead. And that's what the early church, the ancient church taught that as well. That's how they understood these texts. And for us, that meant that Jesus, when he was, because he's the divine son of God, when he was invited into the realm or the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of death, it was kind of like that scene in the Matrix where uh, Neo invites the uh, <laughs> Agent Smith to come inside of him. That's what destroys Agent Smith is, you know, is basically that. In the same way, when Satan invited uh, Jesus into Hades, because he's the son of God, that despoiled Satan of his power and he healed and restored our nature and then deified it in the resurrection and the ascension. So that's the whole story of the gospel for us in short. But um, uh, what was that last question? I'm sorry, I wanted to uh, mention if you, that. If you had to choose, what's oh, more important? Scripture and tradition. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for us, they're both and. So we don't think that there's an either or there because we think that, for example, uh, tradition was necessary to decide and know what books made up the Bible. And this was a decision made several centuries after the apostles. So there wasn't a, a fixed canon at the time of the apostles. They wrote letters to the churches that they had established. But like, there's a couple good uh, Protestant scholars I recommend for people who want to go deeper into this. I'm not Protestant, but I'm saying that if you read a well-known like F.F. Bruce's book or Lee McDonald's book on the history of the formation of the canon, these are both Protestant books that will admit that tradition is totally necessary for knowing and determining, at least historically, what the church did in terms of what books actually like go into the Bible. Right. So um, for us, it's sort of like, it's a false choice because it's a both. And for example, the new Testament in our view, doesn't leave any specific service, like how you do a worship service. So we don't think it's a DIY thing. Like you can't make it up. Right. Cause Nadab and Abihu are punished for trying to make up their own way to do worship. So we think there has to be a divinely given pattern of worship and for us, that's that's called liturgy. We think that the apostles actually set up liturgies 
in the churches that they set up in the first century and pass that tradition down. There's inklings of it in the New Testament, but no specific uh, how to do the worship. And so for us, that's where we get tradition as uh, one of the most important aspects of tradition is liturgy. And so that's why we see the various, very earliest churches in the first and second century. They have altars, uh, they have uh, imagery, they have all the things that you would see in an Orthodox church today. So for us, that's a sign of continuity. And so it's a both and for us. It's not an either or. So it's so, so would you say, <clears throat> if you had to say anything, would you say they're equal? My only hesitancy there would be that if you look at the way the Bible is treated in the councils, when they cite the the what they see as the scripture, and there's debates over the centuries as to what exactly makes up the totality of the scriptures, when the scriptures are tied are, are cited, they're they're usually given a kind of primacy. So, for example, in the in later councils, the way they handle this is they will first cite scriptures as the strongest proof, then they'll cite uh, other authorities like church fathers and tradition then they'll cite arguments from philosophy and logic so i would say that we would still give a primacy to scripture okay awesome also speaking of scripture since we there do y'all have the same canon as the catholic church um if i'm not mistaken the catholic church has uh the book of maccabees in their canon which is very interesting since the book of never mind but um right it's the hanukkah yeah yeah but um and it's about what is what Hanukkah was about. But do you mm-hmm. um do, do y'all have the same canon as the Catholic Church? Or do y'all have something different? Do you have more books, less books? You know, what's what's that? We do pretty much have the same canon. There's a little bit of a divergence because we have third Maccabees in our Bible, and Catholics don't, to my knowledge. <clears throat> Although Catholics are a little they're kind of flexible on this because amongst Roman Catholics, you have a group that are called Uniates, or they're called Eastern Catholics. And these are people who are Orthodox in different centuries who uh, joined back with the Pope. So the Roman Catholic Church has flexibility because some of those Uniates, I assume, would have the same extra couple extra books as the Orthodox Church. But because the normative uh, Bible for the Orthodox in terms of the Old Testament is the Septuagint, uh, the Septuagint included all the Deuterocanonical, what are called the Deuterocanon or the Apocrypha in, in the West. Enoch. Uh, so, yes, we have we have all those books. Okay, awesome. That means y'all have the book of Enoch also. No. Yeah, Enoch don't. is Enoch is different. Okay. Okay. So y'all don't so that that's one of the books that's just apocryphal. Well, so 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 we, so what we, go ahead. Well, one thing I would say about Enoch is that uh so Enoch is is usually classed there's a separate class of these that are called pseudepigrapha, and pseudepigrapha are the books that are believed to have the name of a famous person or apostle, but not be written by them. So like the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Thomas, right? These are these are called pseudepigrapha. And uh, uh, but the book of Enoch, because it's cited in Jude, uh, we do think that it contains tradition. And so for us, there's tradition outside of the Bible that's absolutely legitimate. So we don't have a problem citing Enoch as a part of tradition, but it's not part of the canon of scripture. So what books that outside the 66 books that we all read, just for people listening, what other books do y'all read out of outside of the Maccabees? Well, for us, Maccabees is part of the Bible, so it wouldn't be. Uh, so there's all those other Deuterocanonical books like Judith, Tobit, um, Syriac, uh, you know, Wisdom, Bell and the Dragon, which is an extra chapter of Daniel. 
you know, all of those are part of our Bible. We do think that they're secondary canon. They're not as important as the Gospels or the important as the Law of Moses, but we are there in there and they're typically classed as instructional or, or catechetical texts. Uh, particularly Syrac is really good for catechesis and, and just practical life advice. It's just like more Proverbs, basically. Um, but outside of the scripture, it's, there's not like a definitive list of what we consider acceptable. It's more so that those books can and may and would contain elements of tradition. So like we wouldn't say that the book of Enoch is like we wouldn't cite it to prove a doctrine. But in a speculative sense, there could be aspects to which, you know, the book of Enoch is describing things that are true. Like, uh, you know, Genesis six is talking about angels in my view and, and women and, you know, Enoch backs that up. So it would be a thing that sort of backs up stuff, but not hundred percent certain. And then, you know, scripture itself talks about, um, other, like Jude talks about the, what is it, the Testament of Moses? Um, there's another, uh, the, uh, there's a couple do, uh, books like this cited in the New Testament that are not part of the canon. Uh, there's references to um, Proto-Evangelium of James is mentioned in the New Testament, which we don't think is canonical, but um, we can cite these as sort of uh, elements of tradition, so to speak. But there's not any hard and fast list of like these kinds of books. Okay, now, now I gotta I want to go back to the Eucharist a little bit. And people, a few people told me to ask this. So y'all take the Eucharist as literal. My question is, it is true that sometimes in the New Testament, um, Jesus talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, things of that nature, blatantly symbolic in the New Testament. So uh, what the question was is, why do y'all view it as literal in this case? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I, I was raised Protestant, so I grew up Baptist and then uh, got into like a hardcore Calvinist stuff in my 20s and so I, I, I have a background in like fighting against this idea that it's a real presence. So I understand what people have the uh, issue with this. But for one, uh, if from our perspective, when you take a totality view of the Old and the New Testament and you look at what Christ came to do, when from our perspective, when you understand that what he uh, what we think he intended to do was to heal and restore our nature, this is why for us. The incarnation is the in, in incarnation and resurrection are the two most important doctrines because uh, in the the notion of the second person of God had taken on human nature, we think that he immediately healed and deified it in that sense. And so we need to partake of that and participate in that restored and not just restored, but actually deified human nature. That doesn't mean that uh, it ceases to be a creature or anything like that. For us, deification just means uh, that it's partaking of divine life, partaking of immortality, partaking of eternity, and being what it was always intended to be. So it's not that humans become the divine essence. We think that the essence energy distinction is important here because we're not partaking of God's essence, but we are partaking of his uncreated energies. And so the means by which we partake of those uncreated energies are multiple, but it's not just a mental ascent. Like a lot of times in the Protestant world, we do agree that the mental ascent to the teachings, you know, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word. We agree with that, but we think there's more than that, which is that God didn't just make us as minds. He made us also as bodies. And so the second person that God had taken on a human body 
uh, necessitates in our view also us participating in not just christ's uncreated immaterial aspect his his uncreated divinity but also in his physicality in his bodily existence and so we think that the eucharist is a participation in both of those aspects of christ and so uh <clears throat> saint cyril at the council of ephesus famously said body blood soul and divinity and where we disagree with the roman catholics on this is that they'll use that same phrase but we think that the divinity there that we're partaking of is the uncreated energies. Roman Catholic Church doesn't really have an energies doctrine, but St. Cyril in Ephesus said that the energies uh, are what's present. So it's body, blood, soul, and divinity. The uncreated energy is what turns it into his deified flesh. And so by partaking of that deified flesh, we're partaking of that restored deified human nature. And that's what unites us to Christ, as well as the other things, too. So it's not like an either or, like it's just a mental thing. It's a mental and a bodily thing. And that's why we think Jesus was constantly using created things to teach. You know, he spits in the mud. He, uh, you know, uh, uses water, uses wine, uses these uh, physical things, because we think God is affirming the goodness of created existence and ultimately pointing to the need for us to participate in his actual human human nature. Three three more questions that everybody has. It was really two, but I got one that I want to add, right? Um, so a lot of people may not know this, but if we compare the earliest of uh New Testament manuscripts we have, and then you view some later uh manuscripts, there are verses, I think about six or seven, that was clearly, according to all scholars, added to the scriptures. Now from what I've read, the church added to the scriptures. I'm, I'm not going to say orthodoxy. I mean, it's usually attributed to Catholics. Um, <clears throat> my question is, is are, if you're aware of this, do you think um, God gave them the authority to add scriptures to the Bible? That's a good question. And I would say no. Well, we don't have the authority to add anything. So that would be wrong to do. Um, I did an interview with a New Testament scholar a few years ago named James Snap on this question, in which we go into more detail. So, uh, for example, what's called the Yoannin comma in, in 1 John 5, most people, I think, would agree that that's a, a text that was added. So um, I don't think we would we would hold on to that. It shouldn't be there if it's something added way late. Uh, but he actually makes a really good argument that um, so the the end of Mark, uh, it, there is evidence for that. Um, and then there's other you know things relating to the woman uh, caught in adultery. Uh, so we go into that in a lot of detail. If people want to go watch that uh, uh, interview on my channel, you can search for James Snap, S-N-A-P-P. But no, it, to put it simply, we would agree that you, you shouldn't add those things. But some of those things do have a basis uh, not everything, not the joining comma, but the other two, I think we could defend. And one reason that we would argue that is that there's a, there's a distinction between what the Orthodox church considers normative for the new Testament and what most, uh, modern scholars consider normative. So for us, we do, uh, we're not King James only us, but we do have, uh, this idea that the received text, which is known as the Byzantine text is authoritative or normative for us and we can cite the masoretic texts uh uh in, in the in the sense of the old testament at times because some of the new testament writers cite the masoretic text and so when the orthodox study bible was being put together they uh for the most part went with the uh received text but at, in in some places they do give credence to the masoretic text but ultimately for us these are not huge issues because 
we again uh, understand that the scriptures attest to and point to Christ. They're not identical to Christ. You know, Jesus says that the you search the scriptures because it is in them that you think you have eternal life when it's they that bear witness to me. So we think there's a distinction between Jesus and the Bible, even though it is his word. We think it's inspired. We don't think it contains errors, but there's a distinction we would say between copyist errors and theological errors. So there are copyist errors, and that's what you're referring to, which is that when people were uh, transcribing the text in the Middle Ages or, or late uh, early Middle Ages, sometimes they would make mistakes and leave out a verse or something like that. Um, so there's a lot of nuance involved in that, but uh, simply put, no, and typically we follow the received text on that. Okay. Now, the last two questions is... Uh, I thought I personally thought they were interesting, and one of them I asked to Dr. Taylor Marshall, and I know the how the Catholics view Martin Luther and Protestants. And my question is, how do Orthodox Christians view Martin Luther and and Protestants? There's a famous uh, Orthodox priest on YouTube. His name is uh, Father Josiah Trenum, and he did a whole talk on this. It's really good. It's called Rock and Sand, <clears throat> and he he comes from a Protestant background and who became Orthodox, and he's a, a priest now. And if anybody's interested and want to go into more detail on that, I would say go watch his talk, Rock and Sand. But he makes a great point in that talk, which is just that from the Orthodox view, it's sort of like Luther and the Protestants and the Pope and the Roman Catholics at that time. They're both right and they're both wrong. <laughs> because from the, from our vantage point, we're kind of in the middle between them just to you know make it real sort of simple. Just to, I mean, we think Luther was right to to reject papal claims indulgences purgatory or questioning purgatory he didn't totally reject it um you know some of the absurdities of scholasticism in the middle ages so we agree a lot with that but we also don't agree with luther's uh, idea that there's a strict divide between faith and grace between faith and works between free will and grace um luther has a really hardcore doctrine of predestination which the orthodox church doesn't accept we don't accept calvin's hardcore doctrine of predestination so uh it's kind of a mix we, we, there's pros and cons and we kind of sit in the middle so to speak okay and for the last question i don't know if this is real or not somebody could have asked it because they dislike orthodox christians but i'm going to ask it anyway um they said the question was about Orthodox Christians kissing pictures and say, where do you draw the line at idol worship? Yeah, no, that's a great question. It's a fair question. Like I said, like when I was Protestant, I had a problem with this. I, I was really, I would, that would be the first thing I criticize Orthodox for would be the way they treat icons. And so our view of icons is related to our view of like what we were talking about with the Lord's Supper. Like we, we think that when Christ became incarnate, that was an affirmation of the goodness of matter. So what distinguishes that from idolatry? In our view, idolatry um, is not primarily something that is exteriorly focused. It could be, but not primarily, because in the Old Testament, if you look at when God uh, gave the instructions to set up the temple or the tabernacle, it's full of images, right? It's full of angels on the walls. There's all this stuff. There's the Ark of the Covenant, with ha which has the two seraphim on the top. And particularly when Solomon dedicates the temple, all of Israel prostrates before, it says specifically, before the ark and before the temple. And so, uh, you know, Joseph prostrated before Pharaoh. There's multiple examples of this in scripture where people prostrate. And we don't think that prostration itself is idolatrous because that's just signifying uh, respect. That's all. Um, and so just like we might kiss a, a, a picture of a dead loved one, 
we're not saying that the picture is magical or that it's an idol or something like that. For us, idolatry is primarily an inner thing. It's ascribing to the uncreated, created properties. We're not doing that with icons. We believe that those are the bodies of the saints that Christ has deified by participation in his uncreated energy. So they're holy. They're holy things, just like Elijah's bones are holy, and Elijah's bones raise somebody from the dead. For us, that's the principle of a relic. You know, in the book of Acts, they take cloths from the body of Paul and they pass it around and it heals people. That's a relic. And the Orthodox Church has relics just like the Roman, Roman Catholic Church has relics. So for us, they're holy because the people were holy participating in uh, the uncreated divine energies. And we see, we think the same thing of icons that just like I was saying earlier about how the Bible is a written text. For us, icons are just another type of Bible. They're a written text. They're just an image, whereas the Bible is words. But from our perspective, words are images too. Okay, awesome. And I'm and I'm assuming y'all have the same view on Mary and the Saints as the Catholics. All not all the way, but y'all don't believe y'all are because y'all do the y'all don't pray to Mary or the Saints. Y'all ask them to pray for y'all, correct? We do have that same view. Yeah. We think that uh, if you read Revelation four, five, and six, <clears throat> John sees into heaven and he sees what we believe is a heavenly liturgy. So all that stuff that you see, the imagery there of the incense, the altar, the vestments, the elders. For us, that's what an Orthodox worship service is. We think it's the same thing. Heaven's heaven's worship is Earth's worship in the Orthodox Church, and so uh, when we when John sees the saints uh, that were martyred in heaven under the altar, offering the prayers of the saints on Earth as incense, we think that's a fulfillment of Malachi that the Gentiles will offer incense to the god of israel that's a in, in our view in malachi that's a prediction of the orthodox church service of the incense being offered and so that's a that's a thing that symbolizes in the liturgy what we think is really going on of the of the saints in heaven praying for us and we think that's always kind of been the view because in the psalms which david's psalms we think were they were written as liturgical things to be sung in the in the temple liturgy or in the tabernacle liturgy david inter interacts and talks to the angels at times so for us, Hebrews 11 says we're all part of one city, the heavenly Jerusalem, with the Old Testament patriarchs, with the angels, and with New Testament saints. It's all one big city, the city of God, as Augustine called it. And so, yeah, they, they're with us in the liturgy, in our view, praying with us and for us. So we're not like interested. We're not praying to them like they're gods. Thank you. Now for the last thing uh, that I do with all of my guests, if you had to tell somebody why they should believe in God and why God is real, what would be your message to that person? Uh, so I, I do a lot of debates with atheists. That's a great question. Uh, you can go look at if people want. They can watch the debate I did with uh, Matt Dillahunty and um, he's a well-known atheist. Did an de uh, atheist debate with Stefan Molyneux, all these kinds of people many years ago. They're all on my channel, but uh, just put in short, I would say that if God doesn't exist then we don't have a basis for knowledge, logic, ethics, or reasoning at all. So if we have knowledge, reasoning, ethics, logic, all these kinds of things, the world where God exists, those things make sense. If God doesn't exist and we live in like a chaotic, materialistic, atheist universe, then no, none of those things make any sense, any sense. And there's no reason to believe in those things, much less why anything is right and wrong. So that, that I think is, it's called the transcendental argument. That's, I think, the strongest argument for God's existence. Jay Dyer, thank you so much. Orthodox Christian philosopher. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, and I hope 
a lot of people have a better understanding of Orthodox Christianity because a lot of Thanks, people man. didn't know the difference between y'all and Catholics. So I hope this clears up a muddied conversation. Absolutely. Thank you, dude. Appreciate it. No problem. God bless you, man. You too, man. Have a good day. Yes, sir.